from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Limited Travel. Experts that help you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamslimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 226 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing fine. Thank you. So how was your Independence Day celebration? Oh, it was uh, pretty relaxing for the most part. So we started our morning by uh, actually waking up super early and went to uh, uh, a nature park. I, I feel like I don't even know the name of a park. A nature park versus a theme park. <laughs> uh, yeah, we went to uh, it, we went to Springs that we have here in. Uh, kind of outside of the greater Orlando area. And uh, we did one of those like clear bottom kayaks and kind of kayak through the springs because it was crystal clear. So we could see a bunch of fish swimming below us. And uh, that was, that was super, super uh, relaxing yet a massive workout. So <laughs> as soon as we were finished with that, then we, uh, we came back home and took a big long nap and then i made my way to epcot for fireworks at night because it wouldn't be a wouldn't be a fourth of july for me unless i had epcot fireworks as, yeah, assuming that they were doing them and of course they did bring back the the heartbeat of freedom finale this year which i think is just um it's if you have to see any fireworks in in the 4th of July time period at Walt Disney World, if you're not seeing them at Epcot, then you're not doing it right. I heard you say that on our Walt Disney World show today that, uh, yes, yeah, see, if you're, if you're there during July, see the fireworks at the Magic Kingdom July 3rd and the Epcot fireworks on July 4th because of that big finale. I'm so glad they brought it back. Yeah. It's just, it, I mean, it's just so intense and it's more fireworks than so many people will ever see in one place at one time, but not just like see in one place at one time. I know big cities, you know, they have massive fireworks shows, but this is like, I mean, it's in the world showcase lagoon. So it's right there. It's, it's not magic kingdom being shot off well beyond the magic kingdom. And you're just seeing the results of that. I mean, it is, it is just over top of you. So, uh, I, I know you, I don't remember if you've ever seen their fourth, but I know you've seen their holiday tag that they used I to have. do for illuminations. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like that, but like take it up one or two more notches. And that's what it is. And it's just like, you know, for, for a holiday that to some people, the meaning is solely only, uh, fireworks. I mean, that's a, that's a fireworks show for you. Hmm. Well, if I'm ever there in July again, I'll definitely do that. Yeah, my whole weekend was just, it seemed like I just worked because uh, I had, you know, friends over on 4th of July. But 
Yes, Saturday I worked in our church's uh, fireworks booth because in Sacramento County, fireworks are legal, the safe and sane ones. And um, I was shocked by the prices. Uh, I mean, I think fireworks doubled in price. And as a neighbor told me, well, they come from China. And so, because I, I couldn't figure out why did they get so expensive. So I, I uh, you know, so I purchased fireworks like I always do. And then, you know, Sunday and Monday is really getting the house and yard and all that together. But I did watch, um, I watched a couple movies. I started to watch The Adams Chronicles. You're way too young to remember, but PBS ran the series back in 1976. And it was about the four generations of John Adams' family. A, a little mini series. And so I think, I don't know, years and years and years ago, I think I bought the set, the DVD set at like Costco or something. So I started to watch that. And then I watched 1776, the musical. And because that's one of the, my regulars that I have to watch, my annual, yeah. annual films. Yeah, so I, I didn't watch the end of that, mm-hmm. but I didn't watch the full thing this year. Yeah. And then, um, and then, you know, went to neighbors when my friends came over, we had like appetizers here. And then we went over to neighbors two doors over for they had a little gathering in their backyard. And then our court, um, we gathered and we shot off our fireworks. And then, um, the street, one street over, they have the illegal fireworks. So we certainly saw rockets red glare in the air <laughs> as we were shooting our legal ones off. And so it was fun. It was a fun um, celebration. So that does sound, I mean, it sounds busy for you, but it sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping, and, and the weather was great. It was, you know, we'd been having for weeks, we'd had weather in the hundreds and um, it was down in the eighties with a nice little cool breeze. It, I don't think we've had a July this cool in years and years. So I can't, re- in fact, I can't remember a July where for the July it was in the eighties. Yeah, that's, so. uh, that's, that's perfect weather. I mean, it was, we were having okay weather here in Orlando because it was a very rainy weekend. Uh, something that we were, you know, getting off the Disney wish was not expecting ever after having perfect weather for our couple days on the ship. Uh, it, it rained a lot, but it was doing that rain where it actually felt nice at night. So that was, uh, that was, it, it was pretty wonderful. But like, I'm, I'm excited because on my upcoming trip to California, I'm going to a national park, uh, on one of our first days and we checked the weather for it and it's going to be like 68 degrees in the park. Oh, wow. You're going to be cold. Yeah. I, I, I don't <laughs> think I've ever experienced like sub 70 degree temperature during like july anywhere (laughs) it's not as the high i mean surely i've experienced it as a low but like that that's it's gonna be like one of my uh my personal records for for a high temperature in the middle of july so i'm 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 excited about that i need to i need to get cold i'm just constantly sweating all the time Oh, yeah. And then we had something nice in that. Uh, it shows, you know, that we've, the, the town I live in, we've retained our small town 
feel. I mean, not only because, you know, everybody's flying American flags and we had our annual 4th of July parade where, you know, the kids ride their bikes through the parades and, you know, and everybody has their floats and stuff. But we have um, one, a young man came home who was one of the soldiers injured in Afghanistan in the Kabul, uh, the attack on the Kabul, um, you know, airport. Mm-hmm. And so at, we have a rodeo every year as well during the 4th of July. And um, so on the last night, they had a tribute to the fallen 13 who were killed in the blast. But he came home and there was a motorcade from the airport all the way to Folsom. There were 3,000 people um, in town lining the motorcade, all of the freeway overpasses had welcome home signs on his way in from the airport. And, uh, and then he gave, oh, and he's only like 24, 25 years old. And he gave, uh, just a wonderful speech. And, uh, about how, you know, he, he survived for a reason and, he, you know, he's, you know, he, is going to live life to the fullest and live a meaningful life. And he's a double amputee as a result of, of his injuries. And he's had 41 surgeries and he's returning to Walter Reed for more surgeries. And it was just, um, really inspirational to see the town, you know, support him, but just to hear his, um, speech, it really put things in perspective with everything else that's going on, you know, and what people complain about to hear this young man talk. And it got covered by all, you know, every news station here and all that. So a very, very moving. So, and, and perfect for 4th of July. Most of us have seen the 1939 film, the wizard of Oz based on the books by Frank Baum. You are most likely familiar with the Disney films based on the Oz book series like 1985's Return to Oz and 2013's Oz the Great and Powerful. What you may not know is that the connection with Walt Disney Studio and The Wizard of Oz actually goes back decades with Walt Disney. So joining us today to talk about Walt Disney's connection to The Wizard of Oz is Colin Ayers. Colin discovered the world of Oz through the 1939 MGM musical at the age of three. And this led to a fascination of all things Oz and a lifelong passion for collecting and researching the world of Oz as created by L. Frank Baum. In 2012, Colin was the first United Kingdom attendee of OzCon International, which is an annual convention for Oz fans based in California that has run since 1964. And he has been chairing the convention since 2018. In addition, he is the creator and host of the Oz Connection YouTube channel. Colin lives in Stratfordshire, England, in the United Kingdom with his husband, and he is the director of Flying Sofa Media. Colin, welcome to Connecting with Walt. Hi there, Michael. I'm really happy to be here. Good. Well, we're very happy to have you. Now, first of all, everybody's probably heard OzCon International. What is that? So can you tell us what it is? Because I know OzCon mm-hmm. is coming up. So OzCon is coming up on the 16th of July, on the Saturday over in Pomona. So OzCon is 
it's not like San Diego Comic Con. It's one of the smaller conventions, and it's a convention that celebrates all things Wizard of Oz, whether it be the book, the MGM film returns. Was it's a bunch of Oz geeks that get together on a yearly basis, even virtually during COVID, and we will look at analysis. We'll have panels. We'll have presentations from different artists, uh, and it's just a geek out session, very much like the Disney meetups where. We all get together and have a great, great grand whole time. And we are coming back for our first time in two years um, after being virtual during COVID to return to Pomona, where we is our home for the last few years now. Okay. So if if people wanted to find out more about OzCon, maybe they want to go. And because there's time to get tickets, um, mm-hmm. how would they do that? How would they find out about who the guest speakers are, things like that? So your best place to go would to go to www.ozconinternational.com. You'll find all the information about this year's event on the 16th of July. There will also be some information at a later stage about a virtual event in October. Uh, there's You can register online there as well to join us on the day. Up, and you can even come and join us on the 16th and register at 9 a.m. at Pomona at the Kellogg West Conference Centre and Hotel. I'd also advise following us on our Facebook page, which is OzCon International. And you can also follow us on the YouTube channel, The Oz Connection, which is where you're going to get everything that you need. You can also email me at chair at ozcon-international.com and I can answer any queries for you. All right. Excellent. Yeah. And I'm actually, I've been looking at the, at the website and there's a lot of interesting speakers coming to that. So if you are a fan of, the Wizard of Oz, the books. Um, mm-hmm. This, this, this is the place for you. Uh, absolutely. Think. Or if you want to learn a little bit, a bit more about the books beyond, beyond today. There's always different topics every year. There's always something okay. for everybody. And we go to Disneyland as well on the Mondays. So Monday straight after Ozcom, we're all having a Disneyland day. So if you want to come along, you want to hang out with me at Disneyland. Feel free to come along. It's all on our website and on Facebook. Oh, that's terrific. And what are the dates for Ozcom this year? So it's uh, July 16th, it's a full day of OzCon, starting at 9am till 9pm with After Party. Uh, we have a block of rooms available on July 17th. Several are going over to the Academy Museum as there's an Oz display on over in Los Angeles. And then we're going to trek over to the two cemeteries, Hollywood Forever and is it the Glendale? I can't remember off the top of it, the Glendale, um, where we're going to go and see Judy's graveside and the L. Frank Baum graveside and and hang out and then over to Disneyland on July 18 uh, on the Monday at 9 a.m. And we'll hang out there. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And I know in our show notes, Craig, will have a link to the to the website. So that'll be interesting. Great. And we may talk a little more about OzCon International um, later on. So, so tell me now, what was it about the 1939 film at, when you saw it at the age of three that – launched your interest in the world of Oz. Yes, I think the way I always explain this, Michael, to everybody is the Wizard of Oz was my Frozen. So where parents up and down the world have had to listen to Frozen three, four, five times a day, that was me in the early 80s on VHS watching and re-watching the Wizard of Oz. Uh, and I think thinking back to that age 
I think the colours stand out. For you know, you got you start off in black and white, and it goes to this beautiful, colourful scenery with the yellow brick road and Dorothy's dress and the ruby slippers, and you have some very clearly identifiable characters who have all got traits that they are trying to seek, such as brains, heart, courage. There's an evil demonic witch, and there's just something about it, like with Disney, because I'm a massive Disney fan, that just gets you at the soul from an early age and captures you for the rest of your life. That's kind of why I, I love that movie mm-hmm. much to my mother's chagrin because <laughs> it was too, she can't watch it to this day because she just had enough of listening to it three, four, five times a day to the point that she even accidentally recorded over the VHS I had to try and just stop this passion with us that obviously never, never stopped me. Oh, that's funny. See, you now when I was a boy, it was mm-hmm. it would it would be broadcast every year and that was an event. Everybody mm-hmm. watched it on television. And Danny Kay introduced it and, and and that's the only way we could see it, you know, because mm-hmm. it was not released to theaters then in the mm-hmm. in the sixties. And we just lived to watch the World of Oz, me and my siblings. But I remember that one of the first times I saw it, I'm watching it and my mother was prepared. You know, she we had popcorn and all that, but she was ready. She was, I think, doing ironing. And she, when the Wicked Witch appeared in Munchkinland, I, mm. I was done. And <laughs> I, I went to where she was doing ironing and said, "I'm ready to go to bed." And so she, <laughs> she knew exactly where we were in the film. So she said, "Oh, why don't you help me do this?" I think she had me scoop out the helper scoop out ice cream to bring mm-hmm. into the rest of the family, and she knew just how long it would be until the Munchkinland scene ended. And then we went back, and then I was fine for the rest mm-hmm. of the film. <laughs> so, oh, I love um, that. But the first time I saw that Wicked Witch of the West, oh my gosh! And then, but. I loved The Wizard of Oz, not not to your degree, but I had a long playing um, LP record that was basically mm-hmm. all excerpts from the film mm-hmm. so that you could listen to it, you know, front and back and get a really good feel for the film in between the showings on television. Mm-hmm. So, But for our listeners who have only seen the films, uh, would you tell us how the cinematic world of Oz differs from the world of Oz in the books? So the best way I can explain this is think, think about the Wizard of Oz in the worlds of you know out the Alice in Wonderland series or the Narnia series. The world of Oz is massive, uh, and it's a huge, sprawling, magical land that actually the Wizard of Oz is just the first book, uh, and then there's 39 official sequels after that. So it's huge, and at the time it was class as the Harry Potter of its day in terms of its scope, in terms of how, and it was the first ever American fairy tale. I think it's a mantle that's fair to put there for the Wizard of Oz. So I'll give you some examples of how the Wizard of Oz is a little bit different in the book to how it is in the film. And some of your listeners will be aware of this, and I think some of us won't. So in the MGM musical, Dorothy is has a pair of magical ruby slippers, but in the book, it's a pair of silver slippers. When she's in Kansas in the book, she only has her Aunt Hem and Uncle Henry. But in the film, she's got a whole other cast of characters that are also playing another role in Oz, such as, you know, the the farmhands, that kind of thing. That doesn't exist. Oz is a dangerous place. Oz is uh, full of wild magic. And Dorothy is probably only nine in the books, whereas in the MGM movie, she's 
16, 15, made to look a little bit younger at the around about the age of 12. Um, Glinda, who's a big, big thing in the MGM movie, who turns up at the very beginning at the sequence you were mentioning earlier in Munchkinland, she doesn't appear in the book until the very, very end. And she's not this frothy, feather-brained fairy matron. She's actually a really, really powerful sorceress protecting all of us. So there are elements that are different. They boil down the story of the MGM movie into something more simple. But in the books, it's a wild place and it takes a long time to get anywhere. So Dorothy takes days and days and days to get to the Emerald City. Her friends, the Scarecrow, Tim and Elaine, all get an opportunity in the books to demonstrate how they really do have a heart, how they really do have a brain or courage, which doesn't necessarily come across in the film. And the Wicked Witch of the West, probably the most iconic character in the film. Now, I wasn't terrified like you, Michael. I just loved the campery and the over-the-top <laughs> dynamicness of the Wicked Witch of the West, and I'm quite sensitive usually to horror-type things. But in the book, she's barely in it. She's only really in it for one chapter, and she's more of an obstacle rather than a villain that's always there throughout the piece. Um, later on in the book series, Dorothy goes home, but she actually comes to live in Oz by the sixth book, uh, and she becomes a princess and lives in Oz forever, and many of the books follow her, but there are many other characters that we that you learn about, such as Princess Ozma, who's the ruler of the land. Each of the adventures are very, very different, so that no one book is alike, and there's even at times almost what feels like a Marvel crossover, um, where characters from L. Frank Baum, who wrote the series, will interweave other books that he had out at the time, and those characters and stories will, will cross over in different and unusual ways, and I think for me, the biggest thing that the books teach are one is that you can have very strong female leaders uh, that are in charge in this world because L. Frank Baum was a feminist and his uh, mother-in-law, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, was a suffragette. So that comes across very much in the books and not so much in the films. And he also has this thing where everyone's a little bit unusual or a little bit queer in the terms of it was said back then. And you're taught to respect that in the books. And I think that's a good thing to identify with as a young man or as a young person reading those books. And I think that's what's really stood out for me. And it's quite different in the UK because... We don't really know the Oz series over here. I was just that odd little kid that went down to this, the library and had to find all these books and then absorb it on a huge level, which eventually got me to come over to America to OzCon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I read the full set of the Frank uh, Frank Baum books mm-hmm. um, when I was a boy. I had them. And so, yeah, I was struck by the difference between the film and, and the books. And Craig didn't ask, when was the first time you saw The Wizard of Oz? The first time I actually was introduced to anything Wizard of Oz, it was probably watching Wizard of Oz on TV, but the first memory I actually have is Return to Oz and just being Mm -hmm. utterly terrified by it, like (laughs) nightmares to the point then that like once it stopped showing on TV and obviously didn't Mm -hmm. like keep renting the vhs for it you know it, it kind of disappeared from memory to the point that i forgot about it uh and then you know as as they started showing it more frequently on tv mm-hmm. uh actually wizard of oz then that like took prominence in my my brain because you know when i was younger it was originally only uh thanksgiving is when they would have it on and then it is just mm-hmm. uh kind of grown to be on more and more and more and uh yeah so that was that was kind of my 
my story with it, but I, I don't remember what age exactly. I like that. So in the UK, it was Christmas was our regular thing because we don't have Thanksgiving, as you guys probably know. But it would be on on BBC every Christmas. So when my mum did accidentally record over it, I would then re-record it again at Christmas time. <laughs> well, at least you had that opportunity. That's good. <laughs> yeah, so. early 80s. Now, before the 1939 MGM film, did the public have any exposure to the world of Oz other than through the books? Yeah, so it's the world of Oz was so big at the time, and I'll talk you through a couple of the things that are going on and, and maybe have a listen out for the dates and the years I'm talking about, because all these are going to be quite relevant to Walt Disney as he was growing up as well and would have been aware of the books and the different media going on at the time. So after The Wizard of Oz was written in 1900, there was a play, a Broadway musical called The Wizard of Oz, which was 1902 musical extravaganza. And it was loosely based upon The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum. Uh, but it was a massive, massive hit. And in fact, was what brought about L. Frank Baum's fortune from his work more so than the success of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And that musical ran on until about 1908 and it's it, it's really odd the you know tolo doesn't even turn up in this book it's a cow called imogen there's no silver slippers there's a magic ring and it, it, it's it's more designed for an adult audience at the time but it, it was a huge success so it would have been everyone would have been aware of that at the time and it led on to l frank Baum writing the sequel books because of its success 1905 there was a, another musical called the woggle bug which is a musical based upon L. Frank Baum's second book, The Marvelous Land of Oz, but that did not do very well. So it barely did a year. It didn't tour up and down the country um, and wasn't particularly notable. In 1913, L. Frank Baum also wrote another musical called The Tick-Tock Man of Oz, based upon his eighth book and his third book, Ozma of Oz. Tick-Tock, Craig, you'll be familiar with is from Return to Oz, and we'll get to him a little bit later. Also, <laughs> interesting to note, first ever robot in literature was Tick-Tock. So L. Frank Baum was quite out there in some of his thought process. The... I also see sometimes that there's a little bit of Elf Walt in L. Frank Baum. He was quite imaginative. He did try different things. He just never was quite as successful apart from the books as L. Frank Baum, as, as Walt Disney was. And I think it's because he never had someone like Walt Disney's brother who helped him with his finances. L. Frank Baum was bankrupt on several occasions. And so in 19, around about 1908, he run a series of plays called the fairy logs. So these were a little bit like travel logs. So back in the early 1900s, people would tour the world and they'd come back with their huge projector slides and would, would show people these fascinating journeys from around the world when it was much less accessible. And so L. Frank Baum turned his Oz books into his fairy logs, which had himself performing on stage in front of a lectern, which was, an old version of a projector uh, and he would interact with his different characters with stage actors but then there would also be early black and white films interlaced in there uh, and this toured around the country for a good year but that led on to some very early cinematography so Al Frank Bond went bankrupt after the fairy log radio plays and he ended up selling the rights to the wonderful Wizard of Oz book to a company called Selig who made a 1910 version of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which ran for around about 10 minutes. It's not really particularly a great 
piece of media, but it was on in the local theatres at the time up and down the country. There was also a 1910 movie by Selig um, based upon the Marvelous Land of Oz, known as The Land of Oz, which is now lost, and, and we've not seen that for over 100 years now. Uh, and Baum himself actually created with uh, another bunch of Hollywood moguls a film company called the Oz Film Manufacturing Company. Now, Baum was wise in doing this because he didn't put any of his money down this time after being burned by previous bankruptcy. And they produced four films in 1914. Three of them were Oz films and started off with The Patchwork Girl of Oz, which was L. Frank Baum's eighth book. The Magic Cloak of Oz, based upon Queen Zizi of X. His Majesty the Scarecrow of Oz, which is based upon his ninth book, The Scarecrow of Oz. And then they also did another uh, film of L. Frank Bonds, which was for adults, The Last Egyptian. But this failed completely. But have a think about those years. So we're talking 1902 to 1910 to 1914. Well, this is when Walt Disney's growing up. 1901, was it, when he was born, Michael? Yes, yeah, so the books would have been out almost yearly at this point. The films would have been out. We know that Walt went to the theatre, watched things such as Snow White. So I, I think it's very likely he would have either been aware of these from the radio, from the, either the newspapers at the time, or may even seen some of these films out of curiosity as they were up and down America, even though they didn't last for very long. They were still out for at least a year and some were re-released for several years. That's interesting. You would think with the prominence of Oz in that era as Walt was a little boy and growing up, mm-hmm. yeah, he would have had exposure to them since he was interested in storytelling. Mm-hmm. And yeah. The books were very colorful and they were on full display in most bookstores because The Wonderful Wizard of Oz itself at the time was one of the most book- colorful books to date. It had 24 original color plates and no one had seen anything like this. So they were always out and prominent. So even walking past a bookstore, he would have been aware. They were very expensive books, but they were certainly available. So when do we know that Walt Disney first became interested in the Oz books? So... There was a little bit before we got interested in the Oz books. There was a 1933 Wizard of Oz animated feature that got initially banned because of the. Um, they did this fe- this small short feature in Technicolor, which the Walt Disney Company had claimed the rights to Technicolor, and this cartoon got put to one side and was only released in black and white by Telespire. But round about mid. 1930s Walt started becoming interested in the Oz book series and we know that from around about 1937 he was looking for a follow-up to Snow White he wasn't necessarily looking at necessarily uh, straight away as a sequel but he he inquired we got Roy to inquire with the movie rights for the Wizard of Oz about 1937 and the Baum family had sold the rights, um, as we know from earlier, to the Wizard of Oz, and they fell into the hands of Louis B. Mayer. So Walt was never successful in getting his hands on the Wizard of Oz at that point in time. Um, but we, and we also know that around about 19, late 1930s, he had one of the royal historians, we call them. So these are the authors of the Oz books, Ruth Plummy Thompson was a ghostwriter for the Disney Oz book series under David McKay. 
where she wrote some of the hardcover annuals, such as Peculiar Penguins and the Three Little Pigs. We've seen I've seen letters where she's confirmed that Walt actually reached out to Maud Baum uh, because L. Frank Baum died in 1919. So by the 30s, Maud Baum actually had the rights to most of the Oz books um, from this sequel onwards. And she didn't support any proposal from Walt to purchase the books and make them into animated features or, or films. In fact, what we've been told quite a few times at the conventions is that Maud was not a fan of Walt at all, which is part of the reason. And Ruth Pauline Thompson confirmed in a letter to a fan back in around about 1938 that the he was not successful in being able to acquire the Oz books, and she herself had lobbied Walt to uh, publish her books as well as a in, in film form. So we know it comes to around about the, the 37, 38. We also know that The Wizard of Oz was inspired by the success of Snow White. And that also the uh, one of the biggest, Woz was nearly brought on as a creative consultant for the MGM Wizard of Oz. That never happened for some reason, possibly politics between studios. But even with the Wizard of Oz film, the, there was even, I don't know if you're aware of this, but originally Margaret Hamilton was not going to be the Wicked Witch of the West. It was Sandra Gar, and I can't think of her first name right now. She was very, very pretty. And they were going to do more of an evil queen variation on the Wicked Witch of the West. And she looked very much like the evil queen from Snow White. Um, but then the studio said no, that they felt that she should look old and ugly like Disney's old crone. So even in their production process, they were always thinking about the influence of Snow White. And this is only a year later, so it shows you the impact of Snow White just on the Wizard of Oz production. And the only reason that came about really was because of the success of Snow White, because people did not really believe in kiddie movies at that point in time. Oh, how fascinating. So, and then I know I read that when, after the success of Snow White, Walt considered an, uh, a film based on The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, so he did eventually, so back 1951, if we go back to then, it's important because Walt initially inquired with MGM about selling the rights to The Wizard of Oz MGM musical to him. They turned him down flat on that. And I think he was already thinking at that point in time now that he was going to produce a movie. And it was very similar to how previously he'd purchased up other old films before he made a remake of, of them. One of them being the, um, oh, the name eludes me, Michael, the, um, you spoke about it on a recent episode. There was a, I, sorry, I fluffed there. I'm not sure which one you're referring to. Yes, I can't. All right, let me just. Um, sorry, Craig, I'll just skip over that bit. So we know that he um, applied to. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. No, it's fine. Sorry. It. We know that he applied to MGM to buy the film rights for mm-hmm. um, The Wizard of Oz at that point in time. They refused that. Now, Maud Baum passed away in 1953. And she was probably cold for maybe 10 minutes before Walt <laughs> got in, purchased the rights to 11 of the books from her son. So he was determined to get them one way or another. Uh, he only purchased the rights to 11 of L. Frank Baum's books at that point in time. So these were 
Uh, Ozma of Oz up to Glinda of Oz. He couldn't purchase the rights to Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz because another studio had that, and the Land of Oz was due to come out of copyright in about 1960 and had gone through other film productions. So he never managed to grab that one, but he, he grabbed those, and then initially he was looking at doing a television series with it, or at least two-episode television series. So... He was looking at developing something with the Mouseketeers, which about 1956, the Mouseketeers started to be more of a feature on television. And they were starting to look at a production called The Rainbow Road to Oz. Now, some of the Disney fans might be familiar with The Rainbow Road to Oz because it was released as part of the Disney Treasures collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, at, at the time, it was going to be a combination of several books that Baum had purchased. So he did eventually purchase Dor- the, his fourth Oz book, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, from Lippet Pictures for nearly the same amount as it cost him to purchase the 11 books that combined previously. And then the uh, he instructed Dorothy Cooper was hired to write an outline for this two-part television show, which was originally uh, called Dorothy Returns to Oz, and then was later became um, a full screenplay of The Rainbow Road to Oz, which took inspiration mostly from the eighth book in the series, The Patchwork Girl of Oz, and then elements from Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, which features Dorothy's cousin Zeb, and then other elements from Lost Princess of Oz. So these were combined, and initially he thought that actually the it needed to be a film, uh, and starting to realise that it would be much bigger than actually having this as a, a television project. So upgraded it to a feature, and made the announcement back in 1957 that, that this would be Walt Disney's first ever multi-million dollar live-action musical feature and that they begin filming that that November. So there was a lot of fuss put out about this, and this was even before they were getting to the point of the episode on um, the Walt Disney show. Um, They even listed it under the Buena Buena Vista releases that it was coming soon, and it would star all of the popular talent of the famous Mouseketeers. So we're talking performers such as Anita Funicello, Darlene Gillespie, Bobby Burgess, Tommy Kirk, Kevin Corcoran, Timmy Considine and mm-hmm. Jimmy Dodd. So you, I know you've mentioned some of these names before on the show, Michael. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, those are the top Musketeers, and then of course Jimmy Dodd was the one of the lead adults. Yeah, and I, I obviously had a lot of confidence in the in the show at the time to maybe try these guys out on so, something a bit more um, meaty in terms of the uh, Rainbow Road, Road to Oz. They decided to do um, an episode to bring in even more interest in the show. So this is where you've got that Disneyland episode where they basically pitched to Walt as the Mouseketeers about how they would like this this movie creating and different different of the actresses take on different characters for us. So Annette Finicelli for a start is Ozma, the Lost Princess of Oz, which not, I don't think everyone will be familiar with Ozma. And 
there was hundreds of characters and production sketches drawn for this so they were going full pelt this is also the time that walt was really starting to think now about producing a full live action movie um because he hadn't really done it in terms of a full musical and it does eventually lead on to babes in toyland in a minute which i'll, I'll get to but the it was fleshed out with a full script, full couple of scripts. There was musical music written to it, written for it by Tom Adair and Buddy Baker, uh, and they were definitely going to move on. So it was the storyline itself kind of featured the Caroline as the baddie in this, and it was a little bit of a love letter to MGM as well. So around about 1956-57, the MGM musical was just now hitting television for the first time. It was not as successful as people think in the theatres, even though it's well-loved. It really started to find its success in the 50s when it was on American television. Uh, and Walt was very aware of this, so it would be another reason for, for producing this particular picture. And the several lively dan- dance numbers were made for this, such as the Oz Can Hop, and there was Take, Take the Beat. Uh, but the, one of the things that seems to come out in a lot of the research is that Walt was never really happy with the um, story. So, And he was starting to lose a little bit of confidence in whether or not some of the Mouseketeers could really, really live up to the acting skills that would have been necessary for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, we get... Probably the only time we get to see any of this is in that episode. So we get, do get a great musical number, which is Up We Go to the Rainbow Road of Road to Oz. The rest of the music, you can listen to it on YouTube. There's um, They are all available on there if you were to look up the Disneyland records, which we'll cover in a little bit. But I wouldn't say the music was particularly great either. It certainly doesn't hit the levels that we get from the... Sherman Brothers, by by any stretch of the imagination, and um, I think that Walt, in the end, just couldn't quite pull this story together, and instead decided to go with the um, Babes in Toyland movie. Well, also, which, this was sort of the era when all of Walt Disney's television shows were cancelled, <laughs> including the Mickey Mouse Club. So I think yeah, no, that, that was sorry. sort of the end of the Mouseketeers. Yeah, I was reading up that, yeah, the the Mouseketeers pretty much found out at the same time that Rainbow Road to Oz was cancelled as as also finding out that the Mouseketeers itself was cancelled as a TV show. So, and I know that the Mouseketeers were very, very excited about taking on the Rainbow Road to Oz. Annette Finicelli particularly loved dressing up as Ozma, even managed to take the wig home with her. She loved it that much. So it was a bit of a shame for her, but... At least Annette Finicello, she was in the um, t- Babes in Toyland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Oz still has connections with that because also Ray Bolger, the scarecrow from the MGM musical, is in Babes in Toyland as well. But I think it was probably good that this was not made into a movie. Um, Walt was never really happy with Babes in Toyland. It never really yeah. took off. I've I've heard that in when they screened the final film for Walt, before it was released, his comment was, well, I guess we can't make musicals. And he walked out of the room. <laughs> and when you think about the success of Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. that he learned, really... Go on. Yeah, well, no, he learned a lot from Babes in Toyland, but that was also the era... Musicals were changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that was sort of the era of... Um, 
oh, you know, Sound of Music, but also, mm-hmm. well, others. Like, what, what were some of the big ones? Like um, West Side Story and yeah. things like that, where they were really changing the traditional musicals that were popular, like, in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do sort of say that, in a lot of ways, Rainbow Road to Oz was responsible for, was uh, well, to create such a great film in Mary Poppins because... As you said often many times before, Walt learned from his mistakes. And it, that's part of that production cycle of going through Rainbow Road, going through Babes in Toyland, and then actually coming together and going, you know, this third attempt is really getting off the ground and everything was right for Mary Poppins. And again, where Maud Bourne was not a fan of Walt, the author of Mary Poppins was also not a fan of Walt. So he obviously didn't always jive well with everybody, but my goodness, when he when everything was in the right place, he produced a, a, a great movie. Oh, absolutely. And, oh, Mary Poppins was probably his crowning achievement. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the biggest shame for me as an Oz fan and a Disney fan is that I think to some degree, it, yes, it could have been a failure. Who knows? But at the same time, the MGM musical, as brilliant as it is, in a lot of ways has really stopped other productions becoming into fruition because everything is now measured against this Judy Garland behemoth and that in, in America particularly is something that cannot be touched. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Walt had produced a good production then, I think it might have changed the narrative that we would have seen more Oz productions. But, you know, that's in another universe somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. But Walt didn't give up on on doing something with Oz, the land of Oz, because he thought he turned his attention to Disneyland in a lot mm-hmm. of ways and thought, let's see how we can incorporate Oz into Disneyland. And he looked at the storybook land canal boats. And I'd always heard of this project. I had no idea what mm-hmm. the scale of Walt's ideas were. Can you share that with our listeners? What Walt, what Walt sure. and the Imagineers were thinking of. So, yeah, basically the storybook canal ride, Walt was never really felt that there was a full ending to the storybook canal ride. So in 1959, he developed a project called Rock Candy Mountain, and it was meant to be this big finale for the Storyland book attraction to open in the summertime. Now, this is around about, again, the same time that he's looking at the Rainbow Road to Oz. So he's thinking of them linking this in in the parks as either promotion or coming out at the same time. So basically the storybook boats would cruise into a mountain in a watery grotto. So you'd be inside and the mountain would be shaped like candy. Uh, in color, lots of colorful ways, and it basically would be Dorothy's surprise birthday party. So in the books, there's always some royal festival going on or a birthday party or something. So I think this is where they caught this idea of we're going to sell to celebrate Dorothy's birthday and we're going to glide through and see scenes from the land of Oz, such as the Tim Woodman's Tin Castle. Uh, we're going to see, it would have been the, also worth noting the first time we would have seen some audio animatronic figures. Um, so TikTok was um, made into a model. This actual can, Rock Candy Mountain was made into a reasonable size model to get a feel for what it was like. Imagineer Claude Coates was the lead on this project. I know Claude's been mentioned on the show many times and and 
there was going to be a password that would have been shouted out by the person riding on the boat before they could enter into the scenes. Um, there was going to be um, different elements such as the wiki which um, brought into this. There was um, elements from all the Oz books. So you see in some of the, if you have a look online, if you look up Rock Candy Mountain, you will see some of these pictures out there. So there's like a spoon man. There's another character called King Cleaver. So these are from the land of Utensia from the Emerald City of Oz. If you've watched some of the Disney shows on Disney Plus or YouTube recently where they tour the uh, recreation of Walt's office have you seen this michael and they take you around you'll see king cleaver on on the table so if you think there's why is this cleaver there that looks animated <laughs> this is from that actual you know these things have been kept and been put on display and this is where walt was so enamored with it that he kept these things around and he was never really going to give up but the the rock candy mountain was going to be transparent and it would have looked like a crystal palace it would have been covered in licorice and peanut brittle forged lollipops gumdrops candy canes gumballs and they actually made an actual mock-up out of candy to get a feel for what it looked like uh, it was three-dimensional and they've been gluing dozens of bits to it to get a feel and i think what they started to realize was that this was not going to look great in the park in, in terms of the styling of it what would the the coloring of the clear plastic be like if uh, it rained and there was dirt on there and some of them joked that they'd be worried about becoming diabetic whilst working on the ride <laughs> it was starting to become an in-joke at wed at the time Rolly Crump was also involved in the project. He built some of the models. He, there was going to be spinning flowers and there would have been um, propellers all around just to show emotion within there. Um, but it was ultimately shelved because they just felt that, I guess two reasons. One, they felt that the Rock Candy Mountain itself would just not look great in the park. I think it sounded fascinating. It would have been nice to have ended with this, but I'm an Oz fan as well. But I think also, ultimately, the fact that the Rainbow Road to Oz never went anywhere was another factor in this. Uh, Hench reported that this is all dessert and it's all too much, and Walt agreed and stopped the project. So that well, was the kind shame. of end of that. Yeah, absolutely. I would have liked to have seen that. Mm -hmm. Even if they changed it to maybe you enter the Emerald City or something. Yeah, and then, absolutely. And then you could see all of these different scenes we will get but there is a version somewhat in the storybook land canal boats at disneyland paris yeah so if you go on the canal boats at disneyland paris which isn't is, is beautiful but not quite as magical as disneyland california because they don't actually have someone talking to you on the ride it's done by recording but you do sail past the emerald city and this Emerald City is is loosely based upon the Return to Oz, but the, the the it's more created for the ride itself specifically than the original sketches or the production of Return to Oz. And you get an MGM-ish Dorothy and an MGM-ish Lion, but then you do get the uh, Scarecrow and the Tim Woodman as designed in Return to Oz, which I've seen a couple of times. So look out for that and, you know, have a little think about when you see that. I think it's called the Pays de Confit in um paris 
And to think about your connection to Walt there and what could have been with this Rock Candy Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just as I probably want to finish off on the Rock Candy Mountain, the, the sugary model that they had, they actually, in the end, took it outside to a field and used it as a bird feeder, feeder to a local fowl um, who picked off the licorice and, and the nuts. Uh, so at least it, it gave something back to the um, <laughs> local wildlife. We had Harriet Burns' daughter on the show a while back, and um, she talked about how her mother brought home some of the rock candy, and they made um, Christmas ornaments mm-hmm. out of it. And they, they, she still has some of that. And then, of course, at Disney California Adventure, there is a recreation of the model on Buena yes. Vista Street in the, in the confectionery shop there. So. Oh, I need to I need to pop in there because I have not seen that. I've seen the pictures, um, yeah. and we've presented about this at OzCon quite a few times, but I will pop in on my little visit. Mm-hmm. It was just in the window, right on Main Street. Take a look oh, at fabulous. it. So I'm sorry, on Buena Vista Street. But but Walt finally did find a project for the Oz books, and that was through the Disneyland Storyteller album series. Uh, some of our listeners might have these in their collections and not even realize the connection to Walt there. So how did these come about? So these largely come about because they wanted to do something with the Oz series. They weren't going to the, the Rainbow Road to Oz almost stayed in production hell until at least 1963 in various different formations. So 1965, they released. I don't think they initially planned for a full series of these, but they went with the Scarecrow of Oz, which was um, the ninth book in the Oz series. And they utilised Ray Bolger to do both the narration and play the Scarecrow. And I think this is for two reasons. Uh, Ray Bolger, as we said, was involved in the um, Babes in Toyland movie. So he's already got a connection with the studio. So I thought this, they thought this was a good segue in. Plus, Wizard of Oz, again, was very, very popular at the time. So Disneyland Records was coming up with lots of different things. And at the time, from my understanding, is they wanted to diversify beyond the usual um, Walt film catalogue. Because at the time, there would not be quite as many movies as we have today. And they are LPs, so large records, and you had images within them, um, which would have given you a feel for how the characters would have been drawn. And the Scarecrow of Oz was a very cut-down version from the book. You can, if you go on YouTube and type in the Scarecrow of Oz, you can see this. Every single page is up there. So, you know, go and have a, go and have a look up, and, and you can hear it for yourself. They run at about 45 minutes long. They also developed uh, The Cowardly Lion of Oz, which there is a book by Ruth Plumley Thompson called The Cowardly Lion of Oz, but this bears no resemblance whatsoever to that particular book. It's completely freshly written by the Disney. It's probably the funniest and Aussiest of those books, but it does feature songs from the uh, Rainbow Road to Oz, at least two of them. So you'll get a feel for those songs of how it would have sounded had they gone ahead with that particular production. They even did a Wizard of Oz, you getting the rights to some of the songs from the MGM Wizard of Oz. And we also get the Tim Woodman of Oz, which was another book by L. Frank Baum featuring the Tim Woodman and his friend, the Scarecrow. And I think what they were going for here is they wanted the set of the main characters to kind of, as an easy advertisement, you know, you've got the Cowardly Lion record, you've got the Tim Woodman record, the Scarecrow, and then Dorothy in the, in the Wizard of Oz. So uh, they were, they were fairly successful at the time for the series to continue, but, 
they're really hard to get hold of now. You can probably get them on e- on eBay. Uh, I've got a couple of them, but if you want to have a look, just type them in on YouTube, each of the titles. You can see the whole thing. They're a bit, they're, they're a lot of fun. The sketches are quite nice to see how Disney would have taken their their way of looking at the Oz characters. I have the the, the little smaller ones that were the size of forty five RPMs that played at thirty three and a third. I have that version mm-hmm. of the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I've got that version of the Scarecrow of Oz as well, although whoever I bought it off has melted it because it's it's incredibly warped. Oh. <laughs> well, that was an interesting journey to learn about Walt Disney's connection to the world of Oz. We're going to pause our trip down the yellow brick road right here. But in our next episode, we're going to continue our journey even deeper into the world of Disney and the Land of Oz. But now it's time for This Week in Disney History. All right, Craig, you know, I, I was doing so well, but I, I think I start this week, right? I thought I started this week. You start. Okay, see, I've yeah. already now I'm starting to forget. So, okay, go yeah. ahead. Uh, you're, you're okay. So I'm going to go uh, with... A, a movie, well, surprise, surprise, that uh, debuted on July 10th of 1987, also the year that I was born, and a movie that I watched a lot over my time growing up. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of fun that, like, in our conversation with Oz, of course, Return to Oz had to come up into it and the scariness of it. And uh, I, another movie that just terrified me was the brave little toaster and that's exactly what was released on july 10th 1987 and if i remember correctly the original it was based on uh i think it was based on a story like a a book I, i could be completely wrong on it but uh it's basically the the all the household appliance go on a journey to try their to try to find their original owner uh, after after he moves on and moves away and uh it's a harrowing journey that like as i said terrified me as a kid like the there's a scene in the end of the movie that's very reminiscent of um of toy story 3 when they're in the in the 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 junkyard and potentially facing down their doom it's also, also similar tones in the brave little toaster towards the end, and it just always terrified me. But the the hard part about it now is that it was available on DVD for mm-hmm. years and years and years, and I never bought it. And like, yeah, why, why get it? I am I really going to watch it a lot? And now that we live in the day and age of Disney Plus, it's still not on Disney Plus. Like they have two of the sequels, I think. Like the brave little toaster goes to mars and i can't remember what the other one is like brave little toaster comes home or something something along those lines <laughs> but it, it it doesn't it doesn't match up the original one is the best and you know it's it's got familiar voices that you'll hear in it john lovett's thrill ravenscroft uh i i cannot recommend it enough if you haven't ever seen it before i mean it's it, it's not I would put it on the level of like I'd put it on the level of something of like a goofy movie in that yeah it's not this does not 
feel necessarily like the most refined movie released into theaters, but still worthy of it. And I, I just wish it was available now to watch, but I'll, I'll just buy a DVD copy of it. I remember when the DVD was on sale at Costco and I looked at it and thought, this looks like the silliest movie and I didn't buy it. And, but isn't that the film that caused Sean Lasseter to leave Disney, go to Pixar? Because he wanted to make Brave Little Toaster and it could, he couldn't get it greenlit. I feel like that might be part of the story with it. I know, I mean, I know uh, Joe Ramped was involved with it. I, I can't remember <laughs> what, uh, what exactly his, um, what his full involvement was, but I know Lasseter was definitely involved in it as well too and Mm -hmm. uh yeah it's um oh it's here here we go looking it up right now as you asked me lassiter wanted to make it a computer animated film but he was turned down for it so i I wonder whatever like what he went on to do whatever happened with him (laughs) if he ever got that computer animation thing working and going (laughs) yeah really I wonder what he's doing now. We talked about this a while back, because isn't one of his first films with the studio he's at now about to come out? I feel like it was close. I don't, I mean, because that was already well into the pandemic that, you know, it, he really got rolling on it. Mm-hmm. So it, it's got to be close. Yeah. So I'm just going to do a, gonna do a quick search on it while I'm already surrounded by John Lasseter's stuff. Um, it's It's got to be kind of be here so we have he has two movies that are on the way out and it says one will be released on august 5th that oh. is luck and that will be on apple tv plus and the next one on apple tv plus as well will be spellbound and that's november 11th so mm, okay yeah no i will look for those since i coming, coming have apple tv plus yeah 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 so not getting theatrical releases that's interesting no, but I mean Apple TV Plus. I mean that's what what a good time to be a part of that service, you know, with the, obviously the, all the the victories of Ted Lasso and uh, and Coda winning Best Picture mm-hmm. last year. So it's a you know I I still believe that Apple TV Plus, kind of like HBO, is that one where it's like I will take a chance on any show or movie that they put out because I feel yeah. like it's going to be that extra level of quality. Versus Netflix. They have a really good dinosaur series I'm watching right now. Yeah. I think David Attenborough is narrating it. Yeah, so. I didn't I didn't start it yet, but as I've talked about many times over the years on this show, my dogs just bark at the TV every time they see it. <laughs> so I need to lock myself in my office and uh, watch it. But yeah, it, it that looked really, really awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Okay, well, my little history tidbit is July 13th, 1925, because this is when Walt Disney marries Lillian Marie Bounds, and they get married at 918 Third Street in Lewiston, Idaho, and that is the home of Sid O. Bounds, and that, who is Lillian's brother, and he's also the fire chief of Lewiston. And since Lillian's father has already passed, her uncle gives her away. The Reverend D.J.W. Somerville performs the ceremony with Lillian's sister, Hazel Sewell, and brother Sidney acting as witnesses. And uh, so um, 
Now, she grew up, Lillian grew up in Idaho on the Nez Perce uh, Indian Reservation, where her father worked as a blacksmith and the federal marshal. And then she moved to Los Angeles 1923 uh, and to get a job at the fledgling Walt Disney Studio as a secretary and also an inker of the animated cells. And her sister was already working there. And that's how Lillian got the job, mainly because... Um, Lillian got the job because the studio was in walking distance of the house. She she, she was living with Hazel, um, her sister, and it was within walking distance, so it saved her on car fare money. And so, uh, and of course, Hazel cautioned Lillian, "Don't vamp the boss." Of course, Lillian did not take heed of that warning, and they got married. Of course, this is important, too, because they celebrated their wedding anniversary at Disneyland just a few days before it would open in 1955. So, so a big day yep. for Walt and Lillian, their wedding anniversary on July 13th. So, uh, oh, another uh, movie that I watched, and actually it was also... PBS um, first was on American Playhouse, and you know, you I know we're both fans of A Christmas Story, you know, mm-hmm. 1983 film by Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard did a couple of um, PBS uh, American Playhouse episodes, and one was the Great American Fourth of July and Other Disasters that was first broadcast in 1982, the year before. Uh, Christmas story. And that is where we meet the Parker family. And, but they're celebrating a different holiday. They are celebrating the 4th of July. And it is hilarious. Now, Ralphie's older. This is because Christmas story was a prequel to this, um, this story. So, um, because Ralphie's in high school for this, and he's played by Matt Dillon in his first role. So, uh, and it was, uh, it was, it's hilarious. And there's a couple, like, um, oh, there's a couple of other well-known actors at the time who play like his parents. And it's hilarious. It's available on YouTube. And luckily somebody somehow recorded it back in the day and, um, they, they have it up on YouTube. So I posted it on my personal Facebook page on July 3rd, because the story starts on July 3rd, goes to July 4th. But if you are a fan of A Christmas Story, um, definitely you want to watch this. There were two other installments besides A Christmas Story. Well, there was a sequel to A Christmas Story that called A Summer Story that probably the less said about it, the better. But... um but there was also two other television versions. Um, that one was called Phantom of the Open Hearth. And I'll post that. That's available on. That was a PBS American Playhouse one. It's also, the, I'll post the link to that someday. And then there was one that was always on Disney Channel for the longest time. Ollie Hoppenoodle's Haven of Bliss. And that was one of their, when again, the, the Parker kids are younger and it's when they go on one of their annual vacations. And it's also hilarious. So there's a lot of a lot of installments on Ralphie Parker and his family available out there. I uh, I've never watched it, but I didn't. I wasn't even super familiar with it. But then around Christmas time, uh, one of the movie podcasts that I I listened to 
they did an episode on A Christmas Story and talked a lot about all the spinoffs, as you just mentioned. And if I remember correctly, they said a lot of the same exact things uh, <laughs> that you just did. And I had it like in my mind to remember... Like okay, watch that this summer, and I I didn't yet, but I need to I need to add that to my list now. So I I want to track it down if it's on YouTube. That's super easy. Oh yeah, you got to. It is it is hilarious. It is really good, and there is a fleeting reference made to the lamp in this. In it. it's like a one liner. It's a throwaway one liner, and uh, that you could easily miss if if you're not listening carefully. Well, so, it's, uh, that's got my attention then. Yeah, yeah. I also watched um, Harmonious Live, and because uh, I didn't watch the live broadcast, but now it's on Disney Plus, and it was you know if you, it, and it mainly highlighted the music. If you wanted to actually see Harmonious, uh, you would be disappointed because they only it was like in the background, or they only showed. Um, some glimpses of the actual show itself. Uh, I don't have you seen it yet, Craig? I I still have not watched it. I uh, it's it's very strange. I thought that for sure at some point in time it would pop up on my algorithm, you know, and want to push it to me and it still has not done that. So I keep forgetting about it and then I'll inevitably have a conversation with a friend who was like, "Oh yeah, I just watched I watched Harmonious Live again." I'm like, "Shoot, I yeah. I just I can't I can't ever remember to watch it. So maybe after we're done recording tonight, that'll be a nice way to you know, relax a little bit. Yeah, it's good. And, and you know, and I, and I keep thinking, okay, the music is terrific. I love the music. And then, then they have that final song, one of the saddest songs in any Disney film. And then I remember, you know, after they have the joyfulness from um, Princess and the Frog. All those wonderful songs, and where you're up and feeling happy, and then they gotta bring you down with, you know, uh, with, uh, with the song from um, uh, Hunchback, Hunchback of someday. Notre Dame. Yeah, and I thought that no, now I remember why I dislike this show. One of many reasons, because it leaves you, you end it down. You know, and and I still believe it was the, that it was very calculated. It was they were making a statement, yeah. but uh, it, especially given more recent history uh, of things that the Disney company has done. But um, I don't know. But the performances are fantastic. Yeah. So. I, I need to watch it. I I am. I will say, I the show is really growing on me. The more and more I mm-hmm. see it. So I, I I think it it was one of those shows that really does have to just you have to get used to it. If you didn't love it right away, it's one of those ones where if you if you stomach through it enough times, then it will catch on. So I that's always not going to be true for everyone, but it it was for me, and I kind of hate that now because there's so much of me on the internet bashing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the first couple hours of it being out and available. And now I'm like, you know, it's, I, it, 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 the only thing I still don't like about it is that because of the transition to the other languages, it's hard to sing along with it. Uh, you know, obviously the same with Enchantment that because it's stranger arrangements instead of just straight from the movies, it's harder to sing along with that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's beautiful the way they move into the other languages, but I like, 
I, I like, I like with something like that that's very uh, word based. I like to be able to sing with it. If it's something like Illuminations, I, well, obviously I don't need words for that. It's just, yeah, you hum along with it, and you you know when to hit the notes and beats to it. But I, I think, I think in like five years, Michael, you're going to say you're a harmonious fan. But it's going to take a while. It will take a while since I don't. It is not a must see for me like Illuminations was. Um, so it, it 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 would take five years because I'll probably only see it like three times in five years. Well, give it, <laughs> then let's say this: give it twenty years, and if you don't like it after twenty years, they'll switch it, and it'll probably be around in twenty years from yeah. now with <laughs> only half of half of the mechanism working. Very likely, and and, and the other half <laughs> fallen into the lagoon. <laughs> uh, yep, exactly. Yeah, there were a couple of. Um, there are a couple of teaser trailers for upcoming films that were out. One is, I think it came out like, I don't know, last day or two. The Disney Strange World teaser trailer. Have you seen that? I haven't watched it yet, no. Mm-hmm. Now, it looks to me like, because I haven't seen Lightyear yet. And, and part of it is the trailer did not excite me. This I think that if Buzz Lightyear were in this trailer, this is the movie that would have excited Andy to zoom around with Buzz Lightyear and into infinity and beyond and all this stuff, because this looks like a movie that would have been made in 1995, this adventure, crazy science fiction movie and throw Buzz Lightyear in there. And I think Andy would have been a big fan. Hmm. of it i mean it just because i don't know the trailers for lightyear to me would look boring except for that robot cat but um that i i it uh, i don't see how it would excite a six-year-old um but i haven't seen it so i don't know but i don't know what strange world is about but it looks interesting i i just kind of haven't been watching the trailers recently with with disney movies specifically just like it was one after another that i was feeling underwhelmed watching them and so i'm just like you know what i I know i'm gonna see them anyways eventually let me just avoid the trailers for right now and i actually found myself being much happier because of it uh it's yes i want to engage in the conversation on social media with it but uh it's it's nice it's nice knowing like me going into the Thor movie. If I, if I see it soon, if I have to wait till after I'm back from my vacation, it, that's fine and whatever. But I'm like, it's nice knowing that I watched the first trailer, had a bad taste. So I tried to avoid everything else moving forward with it. And now I'm like kind of back at that point where I'm like, yeah, I'm excited about it. I feel like I haven't seen anything from it. So it's, it should hopefully live up to the expectations that I have reset in my brain now. <laughs> mm hmm. So, well, then, so you've not seen the Hocus Pocus 2 teaser trailer? Nope. I saw, I saw a couple seconds of it play and I decided it was probably better if I don't watch it just because <laughs> I, I do, I still really enjoy the first one. Um, I do too. And I, I think it's, I think it's such a nice movie. I don't think it deserves like the, 13 nights of playing it over the month of October on TV. It's a, it's a really good Halloween movie. It's not the end all be all except, you know, Disney feels that way and other people have put it on that pedestal. I don't, I don't think it's that good, but uh, I, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to, I'm 
going to not be able to judge it or I'm going to end up judging it in a way that I'm not happy with if I watch it. So I, I saw the poster and that's good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I, it looks like it has good potential. So we'll see. But, um, yeah, and I, I watch Hocus Pocus every year. It's one of my Halloween movies that I have to watch. So, uh, anyway, but so we'll keep our fingers crossed. They don't ruin it. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. But, yeah. Oh, is it ever? So, and then, and then I watched with great interest a little, I don't know, media release on Tiana's Bayou Adventure, which I think everyone is still going to call Splash Mountain, no matter what. And, uh, but, um, they, uh, and I, I'm watching it because I thought, okay, if, if the, if the Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Bear, you know, stories have to go, I'm at least happy it's my favorite modern Disney animated film, you know, Princess and the Frog, because yeah. the music is just delightful and wonderful and upbeat and happy. And I hope, I hope my favorite songs are in it. And, um, but I'm watching this stuff and I'm thinking, it seems like the same stuff they they released last year for it. I mean, I didn't. I mean, did you? You must have seen it. Was there anything new to you in there? Uh, not really. It felt like they added a little bit of details, but not significant enough to matter. And also, I feel like so so many people out there were speculating and saying what they wished from it that it feels like it kind of fell in line with that to to an extent. But mm-hmm. uh, that that I. It's interesting you say that. I I, kind of want to go back and read the first release with what was released with this one. Uh, It was it was hard keeping up with it while we were on the wish because they chose our day at sea to have the announcement and everyone was losing their mind. Like they do realize most of the people who cover Disney are currently on a cruise right now, right? And uh, so it, it was kind of hard to keep up with. Uh, all that was happening with it had to had to pay attention once i i got back home but i you know ultimately with the attraction i i feel like i i feel like it's probably going to be very much like frozen ever after where it is going to be like hey it's a sequel but guess what it's also going to have all these callbacks to the original movie that you know and love so Let's not let's not pretend like it's going to be all completely original in that way. So I think. Oh yeah, I don't expect I, yeah. it to be completely original, and I sort of don't want it to be. No, it's people <laughs> want the character because of the movie, not because like oh I want to see I want to see an attraction of what happens next. Uh, that's that's just not how. At least that's not how my mind works. You know, if you want to show me a sequel, give me a movie sequel. But mm-hmm. if you want to do a ride as a sequel, yeah, do it where there's at least one moment. But then take me back to all the stuff that I know and love. Minus Doctor mm-hmm. Facilier, I will stand on that pedestal for a long time. I'm I'm done with him. <laughs> yes, I heard you say that. I don't, so, I don't like um, his song. Don't like it. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, no, but I have to have dig a little deeper and. Oh, you know, all of those, yep. all the others have to be in there. Agreed. So, yeah. But, uh, so anyway, so it'll be interesting to see what it is, but yeah, go back and watch it again because it's, it's all those ladies at the restaurant 
again, chatting about how much they love New Orleans and how it's based on, you know, based on this one woman who opened this restaurant. I thought, I've seen this all before. Even the um, art they released, same exact two pieces of art, which I've been told was rushed and that it's not necessarily, um, may not necessarily be what, it was rushed for the original announcement, and it may not necessarily be based on anything we're going to see yeah. in the attraction. So, um, anyway. so But it'll be interesting to see. They did give a year, anyway, at least. Mm-hmm. So, that's, that's good, 2024. So, next time I go to the parks, I have to, have to get my last rides in. Yep. Splash Mountain. Okay, well, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, as always, you can find me on the shows I'm on. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Telecluster. And you can find me uh, via email, uh, Craig at DisneyInfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me, well, no, can't send me messages yet because my email is not up and running. But you can connect with me on Twitter at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyPlug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.